Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. My dad used to really pull me up on the way that I say my vowels, like the oise and for I. Jess Phillips, proud Brummie, proud Brummie MP. Proud Brummie MP with a Brummie accent, despite what her dad used to tell her. I don't mind it, love, but people are snobby in the world and if you want to get on, you can't speak like that. The young Jess responded by exaggerating her Brumminess all the more. I belong here. I belong in Birmingham. I can feel it when I'm on the train on the way back from London every week that, like, my shoulders start to relax when I get through the Chilterns. This is Made in the Midlands, an original commission by the Coventry UK City of Culture, hosted by Adrian Goldberg. Margaret Thatcher was from a place called Grantham in Lincolnshire, in the East Midlands, a Midlander. So why was she never described as such? Many Midlanders report a similar experience. Our origins are routinely ignored, considered irrelevant, too nuanced to be interesting. I'm trying to put that right. I'm highlighting some famous people from my part of the world and asking, what is it, apart from a couple of little-known lines on the administrative map of England, that makes us Midlanders? Episode 8, Jess Phillips. Labour MP for Birmingham Yardley since 2015, Jess has lived her entire life in the city. She did study at Leeds University, but came home every weekend. She's best known for her campaigning to end violence against women. And as we'll hear, campaigning is in her DNA. This episode was recorded with an audience at a sold-out event in Draper's Hall, Coventry. It contains mild language and references to sexual harassment. Ladies and gentlemen, put your hands together, please, and welcome Jess Phillips. Let's shake hands. (laughs) 
But Jess, uh, I think it's fair to say that you are proud, immensely proud of coming from the Midlands. But what does the Midlands mean to you? It means absolutely everything. And I think that how it sort of makes you identityless uh, to people who aren't from the Midlands is absolutely true. And so it sort of magnifies my identity and that sort of trying to fit into a space that other people think of as a sort of like nowhere land. My pride of the Midlands grows even stronger. And I, I don't know why it feels to people like it hasn't got an identity when it has such a strong and firm identity to be from the Midlands. But it's a tiny bit like trying to describe a dream. You know, when you start to do it and it slips away from you, trying to explain it to people who aren't from here is is quite difficult. And so, therefore, I just prefer to speak to people who are from here. <laughs> But you hang out in Westminster, that's your job, and you're you know, down the television studios and all that in London. And Do you sense that, sense that the Midlands isn't quite taken as seriously as other parts of the country, as the North and the South? I mean, it absolutely isn't taken as seriously. There's no question about that. And I would say, actually, that Birmingham probably sits slightly separate for this because it is a big city, but the Midlands generally... Nobody ever really thinks about it in politics. There is no sense of power here. Like the mayors in the north and the mayor in London, they have like a big identity. Whereas I get on very well with Andy Street and work with him all the time. But the idea that anybody in Birmingham Yardley knows his name, let alone somebody who walk in the streets of Salford would know who he was. Whereas they'll know who Andy Burnham is and Sadiq Khan. There is no sense that we are a place where power resides. And that's annoying <laughs> and true, unfortunately. And within the Midlands, obviously, you come from Birmingham and very proud of it. There's a quote here right. that, that you said that people would say that who don't know you, that your identity is that of a woman, but coming from Birmingham is the single most important part is. of your identity. It Why is. is that? It is more so than being uh, a feminist or being a socialist. The most important thing I am is a Brummie, without question. I don't feel a massive patriot about my country unless there's a party about the Queen or the football, which I don't follow unless we're doing well. I don't feel that sense of being really proud necessarily to be British. I am incredibly proud to be from Birmingham. I am incredibly proud of the sort of light touch nature of the way people are in Birmingham. The understated, and I'm not an understated person by any stretch of the imagination, but the sort of understated naturalness of the people in Birmingham that is sort of like, all right, then we'll probably be all right. I, I think it was Joe Lysett who originally said this line to me, but that the idea that if Birmingham had a tagline, it'd be, I mean, come if you want. <laughs> <laughs> and like that sort of, to, to an outsider, that's become derided. But to me, that feels like I don't have to bother. I don't have to worry about how you're going to think about me. I'm just at home and I'm comfortable 
in my skin and I know it's going to be all right. Like the term all right in Birmingham means literally everything. It's sort of like chow or tikka. You can say it in any space or like yoke to the Irish. It just means anything you want it to mean because it's not very blousy and it doesn't make for a great slogan. But I like the fact that people in Birmingham are are just basically like, you're all right with me. I like that it's understated. Even those people who represent Birmingham, lots of them aren't from Birmingham, and that's not a criticism of them, but there just aren't really that many people in in Westminster who sound like me. There's a woman um, called Anne who is the political editor of Good Morning Britain, and she is from the black country. And I literally heard her speaking in Portcullis House one day and I'd never met her before. And I just started to walk towards her voice. <laughs> I was like that. Oh my gosh, you sound like me. Um, <laughs> You're one of the very few public figures with a Birmingham with accent. accent. Is that an asset or a liability? Well, it's funny because I was raised to think it would be a liability. My dad has got a Birmingham accent, sounds like a Brummie. That's why I sound like I sound, both my mum and dad. But he's an English teacher. And when I was growing up, and it's specifically me, not my brothers, and I suppose maybe some of that is like, you know, you've got to be better than other people if you're a girl who's going to get on in the world. My dad used to really pull me up on the way that I say my vowels, like the oi sound for I. Uh, And he used to say, I don't mind it, love, but people are snobby in the world. And if you want to get on, you can't speak like that. And he used to drive me insane. If anything, he turned me into a yam-yam because of uh, doing it. I'd like affect a really dreadful Birmingham accent all the time. Um, But actually, the alternative has been true. It is... I'm going to say at least a third of the reason that I am successful is because I have a Birmingham accent. In Birmingham, it means that my constituents immediately trust me regardless and allow me into their lives much, much quicker. And on a national stage, for some reason, having a regional accent, this is very stupid, but for some reason, having a regional accent immediately means that you are sincere. (laughs) Uh, I mean, it's absolutely not true, but there is... um, I mean, I am quite sincere, but there's plenty of people with regional accents who aren't. Um, But if you have a non-Southern regional accent, you immediately get considered to, A, be working class, whether you are or not. What people outside of the South East don't understand is that people like me, who are middle class in Birmingham, sound like I sound. They think we're all running whippets and flying pigeons out of our lofts. if you have a regional accent. But also there is this idea that you're a bit folksy if you have a regional accent. And I'm willing to trade on other people's stupidity, frankly. (laughs) In the course of that, when you're talking about your accent and you said people think you're authentic, but you're not. (laughs) And, 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 And that's the way you speak, and I think that's the way a lot of people speak. Do you think that kind of, that self deprecating nature that we have in the Midlands is something that we have that's part of our identity but also holds us back and that's one of the reasons why we're not taken seriously elsewhere. On a macro sense it definitely holds us back because if we were blousy and a bit up ourselves like Manchester then um, (laughs) no never a better way to get a Midlands audience to be pleased (laughs) slag off Manchester it's not the second city not even close Um, (laughs) but the the truth is, is that the self-deprecating thing, I think, is a gift 
that lots and lots of people don't have. They take themselves too seriously and each other too seriously. Like, you, we're sort of taking the piss out of each other is the language, our, our love language, is to take the mick out of each other. And when you enter a political environment where people are horrible to you, I often assume they just really like me. <laughs> <laughs> Well, while we're in the mood to rhapsodise then about the Midlands and celebrate what is wonderful about this fantastic region, what is your Midlands masterpiece, the one place that for you epitomises the very best of this fantastic region? My Midlands masterpiece would, well, what I would want it to be is a building that is no longer there. And actually, if I was honest, I think what they've replaced it with is potentially better aesthetically but the Birmingham Central Library would be my Midlands masterpiece a because I absolutely love brutalist concrete architecture and my father-in-law who's actually not from Birmingham I think the only member of my family who is not from Birmingham he helped build it he was one of the team of scaffolders I spent a huge amount of time there when I was a kid pretending to do my A-levels I don't know if this audience knows this or the listeners of this podcast know this but it was a place where teenagers went to have sex. Um, <laughs> um, you know, you were trying to study I only Henry VIII. Three A-levels there. <laughs> <laughs> trying to study, you know, the life and times of Henry VIII and there would be kids copping off with each other. Uh, I'm sure they're doing that in the current library. I like to think so. <laughs> um, but they've knocked it down. So then I'm going to pick the BMAG. I mean, the BMAG screams Birmingham to me. I thought about getting married in there, actually, in the Victorian tea room. For people who don't know, BMAG oh, yeah, is Birmingham Museum and Art, Art Gallery. Gallery. <laughs> and my granddad was an artist. He grew up in literally like the Peaky Blinders slums in Ladywood. He had seven sisters. Their house was cleared in the slum clearance in Ladywood. He was born in like 1911. But he managed to rise up to go and do further education at the Mosley Art School. And he became an artist and a commercial artist. And he lived with me when I was a kid. And he used to take me to the Birmingham Museum and Art Gallery pretty much every single Saturday. And he gave me the sense, because he told me all the time he was also a massive socialist, that this belongs to the citizens of Birmingham. This is yours. This belongs to you and it's free and it should always be free for you. And just the building, like the Lucifer, like it is so evocative of my childhood. And also the, the Burne Joneses, the, the sort of Birmingham sense of the art that is in there. So I think I would pick the Birmingham Museum and Art Gallery because unlike the Science Museum, which was there when I was a child and all of the things were gifted to the citizens of Birmingham, you now have to pay to go and see those. Um, and I always got the sense that this art belonged to me when I was a little girl, that this was ours and nobody could take it away from us. Tell me about growing up then, your parents, this mm. proud socialist household. Yeah. 
uh, yeah, I grew up in what I thought was a completely normal household, but it turns out was uh, not particularly. So I, I grew up in King's Heath. My dad was a teacher. When I was very little, my mum had gone back to work, having been off work for... I've got a brother who's 10 years older than me and two others in between. So there's a lot of us in the house. There was always waifs and strays living in our house, like somebody from work who'd been going through a tricky divorce. It was the 80s. Divorce was on the boom. Um, And people's kids, we had... uh, not foster kids in the sense that it was done <laughs> uh, through proper systems, but my auntie and my dad would worked in very, very difficult neighbourhoods in Birmingham. I remember when I was very little, we used to take on holiday as respite um, a little girl whose dad had murdered her mum. I really was not sympathetic about that when I was a kid and she got, like, more ice cream or... I mean, I was like five. I don't <laughs> expect too much of me. Or oh, we had quite a lot of teenage lads who were having difficult times at home who would end up living in our house. So it's a bit like Piccadilly Circus, but also all of the Labour Party operations were run from... Basically because we had a garage, a big double garage, and my granddad lived with us, and he was a massive political activist, as well as my parents being really active members of the Labour Party. I went to Women's Liberation Play Group, which was... um, It sounds genuinely like a re-education camp, doesn't it? But honestly, Fluella Benjamin from Play School came once. It wasn't like that communist. It was just that... Um, what, what happened to a women's, <laughs> women's liberation play? Well, I'll tell you what, it wasn't really about the kids being educated. It was about the women being liberated. And there was no organised childcare. There was no state-funded childcare. So a cooperative of women in the late 70s and 80s, including, funnily enough, my, hus- my hu- now husband's mum. So we actually went to play women's liberation play group together. That's not where we started going out. (laughs) That would have been frowned on in Women's Liberation Playgroup. But they got together and they would take it in turns to be the person who, I mean, who'd never pass an Ofsted. It's like 80 kids with one woman. We did do things like make banners for Greenham Common and we'd make biscuits and things for the women. I didn't really understand what it was though when I was three. But the Labour Party was basically like run from our house. We had like a Stettner duplicator <laughs> in our garage. And so we'd make the leaflets on the Gestetner. So me and my brother would sit there like cranking a Gestetner. If you don't know what that is, it is a very rudimentary photocopier. Um, yep. So yeah, that was what my household was like growing up in. Yeah, and your dad was, you say, a teacher, and your mum worked, I think, for the NHS she did. Federation, didn't yeah. she? And, and you make it sound like great fun, but as you were a, a young woman growing up in Birmingham and coming of age, you did have a couple of pretty unpleasant experiences. Oh, yeah. Like, um, well, like most young girls, especially girls in school uniforms, it's like red rag to a ball. I mean, I've been flashed out in the street more times than... I care to remember, had people, you know, pull up their cars and try and get you into them when they were masturbating. And it's not a Birmingham thing. I mean, my God, it's an everywhere thing. If it was just in Birmingham, I could do something more about it. But um, do you think you're campaigning around domestic violence, campaigning to end end harassment of that sort, Mm -hmm. grew out of those personal experiences? Or was it informed by the, the, the... kind of family that you grew yeah, up in. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a mixture of mm. all those things. It's a mixture of the idea that activism works to change things. Most people don't believe they can change the world and that's the saddest thing in the world because everything that good that ever happened, ever, 
happened because somebody, an ordinary person, did something about it, like got off their ass, organized a campaign and changed it. Like, that's literally why we've got the weekend. That wasn't given to us by the masters to be kind. You know, the weekend was fought for, whereas I was raised to believe that if you put in the hard yards, you would change things. I was raised in a place of total activism where if something was wrong, you said something about it, you did something about it, doesn't matter how small you were. And that's certainly the example that my mother had given me. Without question, she is the greatest Midlander that ever lived, in my view. But she didn't live for long enough, sadly. And then also, my own exposure and... Like when I was a kid, I definitely had friends who were sexually exploited in the way that we now talk about sort of grooming gangs. We didn't have that language then. I distinctly remember one of my friends, two blokes discussing buying her for a bag of weed in the pub. Uh, and us being like, well, we should have a whip round, see if we can get her back. Like it was a joke. Or like my friend like being dragged into the back of a van and having to kick her way out. And we didn't tell anyone. We didn't tell our parents because we thought that it'd limit our freedoms. I can't say that until I worked it in women's rights, even though I went to Women's Liberation Playgroup, did I ever put together the idea that those things that happened to me were because of patriarchal norms, misogynistic culture, or violence against women and girls. I didn't think of them in those terms. I just thought that's what happens. So, yeah, mm. it, it, but now I am spurred on by my own personal experiences without question. Mm. No, it's really interesting that, you know, I suppose like everybody's growing up, even if it's a, a broadly happy yeah. childhood, these things do happen, yeah. sadly, don't they? So I'm guessing if, if we kind of try to drill down then into one thing that stands out from those years, maybe something positive. Yeah. What's your Midlands memory? Um, my Midlands memory was in 1989, there was the centenary of the city of Birmingham existing, and all Birmingham children had to dress as Victorians for an entire week. <laughs> <laughs> this, I'm certain it was mandated because literally everybody did it. And so we all, all the girls had to wear long skirts and shawls. Our parents at the time must have had quite like a lot of, like Victoriana must have been popular in the 1980s because everybody had these long skirts and shawls that they, or maybe like just our nuns still had the clothes, they were still alive and they still just had the clothes from when they were Victorian. Um, and yeah, we all dressed up and we had to do loads of activities and we were constantly like on the local radio or on the news. But my my husband, he remembers this as well. He got to like basically like be one of the show Victorian children. And so he had to go and play Victorian games in a shopping centre with five of his uh, classmates. You went away to university, to mm -hmm. Leeds, didn't you? Mm -hmm. But even when you were in Leeds, you, you couldn't stay away from the Midlands. No. I came back almost every weekend, <laughs> pretty much. I love Birmingham. It's way better than Leeds. No offence, Leeds. <laughs> Seriously, though, what was the draw? Because I'm guessing a lot of people away at uni, especially in the first couple of years, you know, yeah, you partying right. and... Just yeah, living a life away from I, parental I have, interference. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, though, I had such freedom when I was a teenager that it didn't feel like any extra freedom uh, to be away. I had a, I mean, this is lame. I had a boyfriend who lived in Birmingham and I wanted to be with him. He turned out not to be a great boyfriend. 
I did not marry him. Reader, I did not marry him. <laughs> um, thank God. But yeah, I, I wanted to come home. My brother wasn't very well at the time and I felt responsible to be with him. But I just, I don't know, I belong here. I, I, I belong in Birmingham. I can feel it when I'm on the train on the way back from London every week that like my shoulders start to relax when I get through the Chilterns. And when I arrive at New Street Station, it's like being in Shangri-La. I, I like walk through like, oh God, it's so nice to be home. I just love Birmingham. I married a kid from Kingsheath who lived at the end of the street. I am deeply rooted in the idea that I can't be bothered to explain the context of something. I want you to understand the context. I want to start in the middle of the conversation. It makes me sound idle. I like the culture that I come from and I feel happy and safe here. So, yeah, that's why. I mean, Leeds is nice. It had a Harvey Nichols before we had one. <laughs> that husband is Tom. My husband got, is Tom, yeah. Reader, she did marry him. I did and, marry uh, him. And you got two kids as mm -hmm. well, yeah? Yep. He's, as you say, he's a brummy from just up the road. Yeah, he, he is. I mean, it's really boring, isn't it? So basic. I don't think I've ever been out with anyone who wasn't from Birmingham, though. Oh, very basic. <laughs> In 2010, you started working for Women's Aid, yeah. which is a, a charity that deals with victims and survivors mm -hmm. of domestic abuse, domestic mm -hmm. violence. And that was based in West Bromwich. It now, was. this is a very fine distinction for people who don't come from the area, but West Bromwich is literally across a county line from Birmingham, it but is. it's in the black country. And I suppose it just brings us to the, the point, Jess, where we have to acknowledge the Midlands is this fantastic place and we're trying to mm -hmm. cultivate this sense of identity. It's next door to Birmingham, but it's very different. It's completely different. It's not like Greater Manchester. Like, I'm sure Oldham is different to Central Manchester. I have no doubt about that. But it feels still like one continued place, whereas when I was working in... West Bromwich. I really, really loved West Bromwich. I love West Bromwich High Street. And it was just around the time that they'd built that big art centre, the public, that seemed, I loved it, but it seemed to totally be a massive failure. Yeah, I don't know why I liked it. But the culture is so different. They genuinely thought that I was one of the poshest people that they'd ever met because I ate olives. <laughs> which is where I, I made a famous speech about this in Parliament and that entirely comes from they're like, oh, look at you, eating olives. I'm like, <laughs> they would say things to me like, oh, we're going, we're going on holiday this weekend, we can't wait, we're going to see a show, stay in a hotel, it's going to be lovely. I'll be like, where are you going? They'll be like, Birmingham. <laughs> but yeah, the, the, there is a deep sense of different culture and also the sense that they have a history that is different to our history, even though much of it is shared. I just absolutely love the people in the black country. They are so funny. And even they're like more acutely like whatever than people in Birmingham. I just, I absolutely loved working in Sandwell. Women's Aid was also the place where you met your Midlands hero. Yes, I'm going to credit both the chief execs of both Black Country Women's Aid and Birmingham and Solihull Women's Aid. So they are women called Sarah Ward and Maureen Connolly. 
and I pick them as my Midlands heroes, not just because they're brilliant women who run brilliant charities. I pick them because they are basically like pains in the arse on the side of the angels. I have gone from being a poacher, come gamekeeper, haven't I? So I have been gone from being an activist who tried to change policy to a being a policymaker. And so and Maureen Connolly lives around the corner from me. She's the chief executive of Birmingham and Solihull Women's Aid. And there is never a moment where she will not give me her opinion in quite forceful <laughs> terms. And they are both working class women from Irish backgrounds. And I recently did um, a thing for St. Bridget's Day, which is like the women's liberation version of St. Patrick's Day. I was asked to look into the history of Irish women in Birmingham, and I couldn't find any resource on it because women's history is never written, so we don't know, and working class history is never written. And so even though I'd grown up in this city where I knew how much Irish migrancy had changed, and certainly like the midwives and the women who helped other women, the Irish and West Indian women who had helped other women in my city that I knew from my own experience and from people like Maureen Connolly, and just there was nothing written about this history. And between these two women, they have every year, their efforts have saved tens of thousands of lives. And we just don't even know who they are. They just plow on, sending me emails when they're pissed off about something, which they are always pissed off about something. And I just think that they are absolutely unsung heroes of the city of Birmingham, are the women whose history has not yet even been written. And so, I mean, I'll have to do it. I'll have to write that book. <laughs> your mum was a bit of a hero mm -hmm. to you as well. And, and yeah. your mother's death coincided really with your serious involvement yes. with politics. Obviously, you'd grown up with it in the household, but you made the move to be, become a councillor and eventually an MP yeah. around the time your mother was dying and That's passed right. away. Yeah, 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 yeah. So my mum was a massive hero to me. My mum was a working class kid. She grew up in Yardley, in my constituency. And her parents got divorced in the 1950s, totally unheard of. She didn't tell anybody. Uh, my granddad, I lived him, the one who lived with me, I loved him, but like many righteous left-wing men, he wasn't cracking to women and he wasn't particularly cracking to my nan. Um, so they got divorced and my mum, so my mum was essentially raised by a single mother who was a dinner lady at Cockshire Hill School in Yardley. She was a clever kid and she went to Birmingham University her home economics teacher had told her that she'd never get a husband because she couldn't make a jelly. <laughs> My mum had to tell her home economics teacher then that she was engaged to be married very shortly. <laughs> Didn't give a toss about the jelly. Luckily, my dad can make a good jelly, so it was fine. Basically, before I was born in the late 1970s, my mum started a campaign based because my nan had been given a drug called Eraldin which was given to women, well, given to lots of people for angina. My nan didn't even have angina, but of course, we don't care about women's health conditions and we don't do any research. We just paste on a man's default disease onto them. And my nan had been given this medication and it dried up her tears. 
So she had no tears, which doesn't sound like a big thing until you realise that that means like every single time you blink, it's like sandpaper in your eyes. And it basically blinded my nan. And my mum started a campaign to stop the use of this drug by ICI, the biggest drug company in the country. And she set about finding other people who had suffered from this. Now, bear in mind, my mum didn't even have a house phone, let alone the internet or Twitter to find people. So she went around the country holding public meetings, finding people, ringing up MPs. And eventually she found hundreds and hundreds of people who had suffered from this and with other campaigners. They stopped the use of Ereldin and in 1982 they finally settled it added up to around £8.1 million in 1981 that they managed to sue ICI for that was given out to all those people. And my mum did that when she was 20... She started when she was 24 with two children. She finished it when she was 28 from a terraced house in the black country. And she just believed she could change it because something was wrong. So my mum was Erin Brockovich, but with a dreadful perm. There is a, uh, <laughs> there, is a, there is a panorama that was filmed, and she's pregnant with me, I think, at the time. I've actually never seen it, but my son is really into film, my older son, and he went to the BFI archive and found it, and they're digitising it for my family. When I used to say, we should try and get that mum, she'd say, oh, I just don't want to remember. My perm was so bad. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't want any fuss. So when she died, I definitely threw myself into activism, not necessarily just because of her legacy, but just because often when people are suffering from grief, she died when I was 29. That's what you do, isn't it? You make yourself busy. So that's what I did. And you had that fantastic example then in your household that oh, yeah. activism can make a difference. Now, you've been an MP since 2015, yeah. so seven years. This is not a, a trip you up question. As a backbench MP with an opposition party. What difference do you think you've made to people's lives? I often sit with ministers and I think, you're going to do this in the end. Can't you just do it now that I'm saying it in the first meeting? I am going to drag you kicking and screaming to this conclusion. Save us all the bother. Good. What's, yeah. your, what's, your, what's your proudest? Oh, the, pr- the thing I am absolutely proudest of, and in fact, the minister stood at the dispatch box and said, Jess, you promised me you'd retire if I gave you this. <laughs> <laughs> you have to. It's the reason I went to Parliament at all. I wanted to make refuge accommodation a statutory requirement of every local authority so that nowhere could get away with not providing refuge accommodation in an era of cuts. It wasn't protected. There were only actually three things that councils have to, tier one councils, so Coventry or Birmingham, in fact, all of the West Midlands big councils are tier one. By law, have to provide... So bins, they have to provide by law. And adult and children's services, so social, social services. So everything else is a perk, whether your parks, your libraries, everything. And so in a time where there's not plenty... It becomes the politically expedient things that you keep. Like they would keep the bins anyway because people don't like it when stuff piles up on their streets. And people don't like it when their library's shut. People notice that and they moan at local councillors about it. No one moans at local councillors about refuges shutting down. Domestic abuse isn't 
politically expedient in a local election. It actually is now, and this is another one of my proudest movements, is that I think that I'm one of the people who has raised the profile of violence against women and girls to the point where it is now a political priority of most uh, people in the country, and that makes it a priority of most people in Parliament. I watched council after council in the Midlands having to cut their refuge accommodation and I just thought I've got to make it so legally they have to provide it. So I ran a campaign with the Sun newspaper, uh, who were the biggest supporters, I'm going to say. It was called Give Me Shelter, and it was to make it a legal requirement of every council in the country to have to provide a certain level and standard of refuge accommodation. So now, women matter as much as bins. <laughs> Uh, I am I, I am moving on so that women eventually in policy terms will be as important as cars. We're <laughs> a long, long way off at the moment, but we'll get there. You mentioned there with a knowing wink that you did that campaign with the Sun newspaper, which of course many people in the Labour Party yep. are very wary of, to say the least. Yep. And you cross swords with your previous leader, Jeremy Corbyn. People I'm sure have suggested to you in the past that that you're in the wrong party. That was yeah. like more <laughs> this you, week they've suggested it do, to me. Do you, yeah. do, you, do you ever think that? Oh, absolutely not. People who suggest that are idiots. The Labour Party is a collective. Um, not only am I in the right party, I'm actually from the left of the Labour Party. But just because I don't kowtow to people that I don't like and don't think are any good at their jobs, that doesn't mean that my ideology changes about equality and rights. What I will never do is I will never put crusading and righteousness above achieving an outcome for the people. I can be right all day long and not take help from the sun, or I can take help from the newspaper that the, the Conservative government will listen to, and I can house thousands of women in refuge. I know which I choose. I don't care if it makes people feel uncomfortable, because it does not as uncomfortable as having 60% of women turned away. After Jeremy Corbyn stepped down, you briefly stood for the leadership of I the did. Labour Party. Then stood. I think you said at school, uh, at your school, that you one day you dreamed of being Prime Minister. That's right. Do you still dream of being Prime oh, Minister? God, who wouldn't want to be? I know a lot of people would say I wouldn't want to be the Prime Minister, but I would love to be the Prime Minister. I'm going to keep on going until the point where you are the person who gets to decide the things that you want then you should always keep on climbing, is my view, and keep trying to get to the position where you have the maximum amount of power to do the maximum amount of good. The Labour Party has this weird thing about not wanting to talk about power and wanting power, but I'd like loads of it. You obviously love the Midlands very much, Jess. So what is the one thing that you, if you had the power, would change in the Midlands? What's your Midlands manifesto? You see, I mean, obviously, there are things that I would want to see change for the country that I think would improve around things, uh, around equality and things. But actually, I've got to say, transport is so shocking in the Midlands. Most people in Birmingham haven't been to any of the other bits of Birmingham, let alone been to Coventry or to Tipton. So go on, then the, what's the manifesto? So point? the manifesto would be, essentially, I want to see proper 
a proper transport system across the West Midlands that properly connects the people to the jobs and the economy. I know it's not very sexy and not very glamorous, but I want to get on a tram. And in London, it's just easy to get everywhere. <laughs> Although they're lazy and they never go anywhere apart from the exact tiny bit where they all live. Outside of politics, mm -hmm. what does Jess Phillips do for fun? Um, well, I, I used to like to go out to the pub and go out dancing and things, but more and more, I have to say, People talk to me about their interest in politics when I'm in the pub. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not very interested. <laughs> At the weekend, I want to do something else. So I tend to have a very, very solid group of friends who I've known since childhood, who I can start in the middle of the conversation with. And we tend to just like hang out at each other's houses and get pissed and dance around to the same 10 songs. We tell the same stories over and over and over again as if we've never heard them before. Um, but, you know, I like eating out. And I think Birmingham and the West Midlands, it's like got amazing for great food and stuff in the last sort of 10 years. It's been Tory Britain definitely made middle class areas posher. But it isn't, I have to say, it isn't much fun for me to go out where people are drunk anymore because when people are drunk, they are absolutely certain that their views on Russia are right. And anybody else would want to hear them. And neither of those things are true. <laughs> Made in the Midlands is an original idea by Andrew Smith, who is also the producer. The researcher is Molly Davidson, and the executive producer is Richard Berry. Sound design is by Dan King, and the music is composed by Maya Miller-Lewis. That's me. We're all from the Midlands, like our host, Adrian Goldberg. Jess Phillips, thank, thank you. Thank you to you. Next up on Made in the Midlands, Ellie Simmons, a prolific Paralympian from Walsall. Our youngest Midlander in this series won two swimming gold medals at the age of 13. To be that poster girl for the Midlands, it makes me so proud because I love the Midlands. Why not subscribe to Made in the Midlands wherever you go to get your podcasts to hear from Ellie and a host of other famous Midlanders. We'd love to know about your own Midlands heroes. Email us at madeinthemidlands at loftusmedia.co.uk Do share the podcast with anyone you think might enjoy it and please leave us a review as well. It all helps to get us noticed. Made in the Midlands is an original commission by the Coventry UK City of Culture 2021, proudly produced by Loftus Media. Thanks for listening. Ta-da!